you have your Bibles, please open to John 19. Gospel of John, chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 1 through 30. The words will be on the screen. John 19, 1 through 30. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, and the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription to put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was laid near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill, even this was to fulfill the scripture which said, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, because Jesus knew that all things already had been completed in order that the scripture should be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. And a vessel was lying there full of sweet wine. Therefore, they took, after placing a sponge on a stick of hyssop, they brought it to his mouth. When, therefore, he, Jesus, took the wine, he said, to Telestai, it is finished. And after bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Let's go before the Lord. O oh, long awaited one, long prophesied one, virgin born one, incarnate one. Sinless one, suffering one, crucified one. We come to you tonight and we ask you that our eyes would be open more than ever to behold the beauty of your death. That we would understand the beautiful and scandalous night which led into a beautiful and scandalous morning and a beautiful scandalous afternoon and a scandalous weekend leading to a beautiful and glorious an astonishing and soul-thrilling and destiny-altering Sunday morning. Oh, Lord, we very much need your help. Lord, we come loaded with burdens, loaded with cares, many distractions, many things that vie for our affections, that vie for our attention, that compete with you on the throne of our soul. And so we ask you even now this moment that you would secure yourself in our souls, that you would be our greatest, highest, and deepest treasure. Help us, O oh Lord, to see you for the supremely valuable treasure that you are. We thank you for this night together. In your mighty and matchless name, amen. I've said it before. The murder of JFK has always been intriguing to me. Obviously, I wasn't alive to see it at the time, but I've always been fascinated by his murder, fascinated by his assassination, and really, that's a shocking thing, isn't it? I mean, regardless of where you stand politically, the murder of a president on American soil, that's a shocking thing. That's an unsettling thing. And you realize that no matter how much we learn about his assassination, that mystery and intrigue still abound, doesn't it? I mean, there's still so much that we don't know, that we don't understand about his assassination. There are rumors and secrets and questions still unanswered. Not the least of which is who was actually involved. Was it really a lone gunman? The sixth floor of a building? Or was there another gunman on the grassy knoll, maybe more than one? Does the shooting tell, the footage of the shooting tell another tale? Other gunmen, other people involved. I mean, what do we do with their rumors and bribes and payoffs and witnesses murdered before they could take the stand? What do we do with that? 
Why are their documents about the assassination so serious and dangerous in their implications that they have never been before released to the public? What do we do with that? I mean, you feel this, right? This is intriguing. This is scandalous, not the least of which this is scary and frightening. I mean, there is some kind of conspiracy lurking in the darkness here, and only time will tell when we will learn the truth. My point is to not to talk about JFK, obviously. The connection is this. The connection is JFK's assassination, intriguing though it may be, is nothing compared to the assassination of Jesus Christ. Because unlike JFK, we know everything about the murder of Christ. We know everything about it because the sacred text tells us exactly what went down. It was not just Judas by himself working alone. It was also the Pharisees. It was the Sadducees, Herod, and the Roman government all conspiring together, wasn't it? And we know how it went down. There were bribes, there were payoffs false witnesses, and it was not a rifle from the sixth floor of a building that gunned him down. Rather, what it was was a cross, a Roman instrument of torture and death. And yet, and yet, here's, here's the thing about this death. The most shocking part of all about the murder and assassination of Jesus Christ is that it was the father who planned the death of his son. The father planned this. It was a murder lovingly premeditated, co-premeditated by the Father and the Son before time began. You know that, don't you? They conspired together to pull off the greatest murder plot in history, which means, which means the murder of Jesus Christ is both scandalous and it's beautiful. It's tragic and it's triumphant. It is gruesome to be sure, but it is also glorious because when Christ died, he was not a helpless victim in the clutches of his enemies, but he was a victorious king who died for his enemies. And that's what we're here to celebrate. So let's go to the text. Tonight, I want you to see from this text that I just read two ironies. Two ironies, two beautiful and scandalous ironies of the crucified God that make us weep, that make us worship, and that make us want to live all the more for his glory. That's where we're going, two beautiful and scandalous ironies of a crucified God that make us weep, that make us worship, and make us want to live all the more for his glory. And the scene is split into three parts. Part one, part one Christ rejected by the fickle crowds. Christ rejected by the fickle crowds, verses 1 through 15. You understand that the chaos, the corruption, the mayhem that we're about to witness is the culmination of hours of evil deeds, actually months, years of evil deeds, planning. In chapter 18, the religious leaders, they, you remember, they take Christ into custody and they proceeded to interrogate him with their fists. And then after a bogus trial, a sleepless night and an all-night escapade of beating and mockery by the Jewish authorities. They bring Christ then to the federal authorities, otherwise known as the Roman government. And you remember what happened. They pressure the governor, Pontius Pilate, to treat Christ as a hostile based on bogus charges. By the time we get to chapter 19, although Pilate finds no probable cause to kill Jesus, he's pressured by the bloodthirsty crowd to take him into custody. And the chapter begins at a brutal moment in verses 1 through 3. Look at the text. 
19, 1 through 3, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, scourged him. And the soldiers, after weaving together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they clothed him with a purple garment. And they were coming to him, and they were saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were giving to him blows on the face, is the word. It's very interesting to to appease a fickle crowd who, by the way, praised Christ as their Messiah. Pilate let loose the dogs on Christ. He has Christ whipped, scourged, which would have just obliterated his flesh, resulting in blood loss and shock. And for fun, the Roman legion, trained killers, by the way, trained mercenaries, takes turns rearranging the face of Christ until finally Pilate brings him out to the crowd, almost as if to provoke the mob to sympathy. And in verse 5, he yells to the crowd, Ideha anthropos, behold the man. In other words, here he is. Is this what you want? Is this what you're so concerned about? You want to kill this? But you understand the pilot, Christ was pathetic. This guy doesn't pose a threat to anybody or to anything, or so he thought. And yet little did he know of the prophecy uttered about Christ, even when he was just an infant, that he would lead to the rise and to the fall of many corrupt and unjust men, exactly like Pilate. You remember the crowd was undeterred. Their thirst for blood unsatiated. And so in verse 6, they, they simultaneously stirred into a frenzy. They shout at the top of their lungs, crucify him. Crucify him. There was only one way this thing was going to go down. Verse 15, they cried out, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. And yet, even though Pilate told them three times, three times that he found no guilt in him and nothing to charge him with, the coward that he was, he caved to the mob and delivered him over into their hands. Which brings us to part two. Part two, Christ impaled on a bloody cross. Christ impaled on a bloody cross, verses 16 through 24. Although bleeding, dehydrated, and exhausted, Christ is forced to carry his own 100-pound crossbeam out to the place of execution, grimly known in Aramaic as Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And you know that when men go out to Golgotha, they don't return, do they? Verse 18, they pierce him to the cross like a piece of bloody meat. They hoist him in the air for everybody to see with two criminals crucified on either side. And in that moment, you understand, that's when the real torture began. You understand, people died in crucifixion not by the wounds themselves, but what actually killed them was asphyxiation. It choked to death. Arms stretched out wide, put pressure on the diaphragm, allowing the victim only to take short, shallow breaths. See, to take a deep breath, they had to hold their body up by their hands and their feet, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But the problem is, the problem is their hands and their feet were pierced with iron spikes, which means every time they pulled themselves up to breathe, pain like molten lava shot through their body until finally they had no more strength to give and they suffocated and slowly choked to death. Every nerve in your body would be on fire. Constant pain, 
the unrelenting, frantic feeling that you were choking to death, which, of course, you were. And this was the state of the Savior for hours and hours. His mockers and scoffers, Matthew tells us, laughed, joked, as they looked at his half-naked, mutilated body, saying, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really who you say you are, come down off that cross. Look at this guy. He saved others. He cannot even save himself. Interestingly, ominously, Mark tells us that the whole time darkness covered the land. And among the customs of the day was to post a sign on the cross indicating the charges of the criminal. In verse 19, you look, notice the irony of the charge. Pilate had nothing else to, to convict him of, so he simply put, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And the reason why that's ironic is because Pilate didn't believe it. The religious leaders certainly did not believe it. Maybe even the disciples themselves didn't believe it. But even if no one believed it, that doesn't make it less true, does it? Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews, whether everyone believes it or no one believes it, because one day he will arrive and he will claim the kingdom that's rightfully his. Meanwhile, you remember the scene, the Roman soldiers, even they get, on, get in on the action. Bored and waiting for this whole thing to end, they amuse themselves by casting lots for the clothing of Christ. What they didn't know, what they could not have possibly known, as even them gambling with one another, rolling dice for the articles of clothing that belonged to Christ, that even that, even that was part of a prophecy written a thousand years earlier in Psalm 22. This is incredible. Either watching this thing happen or recalling it later, John thinks about the scene and writes down, the, 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 he quotes Psalm 22. 18, which says this, they divided my garments among them and my cloak, they cast lots. Look at the end of verse 24, it says, the soldiers therefore did these things. What's the point? The point is, this is scandalous and this is beautiful and yet everything is going to plan even down to the smallest detail. Which brings us to part three. Part three, Christ absorbed the dreadful curse. Christ absorbed the dreadful curse, verses 25 through 34. Again, what's so ironic about the scene is that it looked like your average everyday execution, didn't it? Just three scumbags, three dirtbags getting exactly what they deserved, and yet what could not be seen by human eyes, what could not be possibly perceived by human senses was the exquisite catastrophe taking place behind the scene. It was exquisite, and it was a catastrophe. It was beautiful, and it was scandalous. It was gory, and it was glorious. Because you understand in that moment what was happening is that the father was crushing his own son. He was treating his own son as our sins deserve, wasn't he? He was punishing his own son as if he were the one who committed all those sins. In that moment, the great king, the great son of God, the incarnate one, took the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. And he was glad to do so. He was glad to do so. Because that was always the plan even before the foundation of the world. And yet notice, notice that 
that we get a glimpse of what was really happening in the moment. Look at verses 28 through 30. After this, because Jesus knew, he knew that all things already had been completed, that the scripture may be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. And there was lying there a vessel full of sweet wine. And after putting a sponge full of the wine on a stick of hyssop, they brought it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore took the wine, he said, It is finished. And after bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And there it is. The three most important words ever spoken in human history. Three words in English, one word in Greek. The word tetelestai. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. What? What is finished? His suffering? Of course, that's true for sure, but... What was finished in that moment, get this now, was the wrath-bearing, sin-conquering death by which alone we get reconciled to the Father known as the atonement. That was finished. Because even though it looked like your everyday average Roman execution, what it actually was was a transaction, wasn't it? A Trinitarian transaction where all those souls chosen by the Father before time and given to the Son were paid for and purchased. In that moment, all those souls from every nation whose names were inscribed in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world were purchased and procured and paid for by the Son. And this moment right here, you understand, was the secret to the entire operation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ became a curse for us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just in the place of the unjust in order that he should bring us to God, and just like Isaiah prophesied 700 years before this moment happened, therefore our griefs he himself carried, and our sorrows he bore them, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That That is exactly what Christ meant when he screamed into the midday darkness, Tetelestai. It is finished. Because it was finished. And it is still finished. Because you understand that if you belong to Jesus Christ here tonight, if you belong to him by faith, if you have union with him by faith, you are the beloved recipient of the finished, completed, saving, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paid in full, 
nothing left to add, nothing left to contribute, nothing left to atone for. Christ drank every drop of the Father's rage, and he drank it to the end. Christ guzzled the goblet of the Father's anger, and he drank it to the end. And you understand, when you heard the gospel... And in that moment, you believed in Jesus Christ. Every single salvation blessing he purchased with his death was then transferred to your bankrupt spiritual bank account, and you were reconciled to the Father. You were adopted by the Father. You were justified by the Father. You were forgiven by the Father. You were redeemed by the Father through his Son, and you became his. No more guilt. No more wrath left to bear. Your infinitely long criminal record of sins permanently deleted and canceled. The Father, hear this now, the Father sees you with the very purity and righteousness of His Son. Tonight you sit here, if you belong to Christ, as sons and daughters of the living God, adopted through His Son. And reconciled to God as the treasure of your soul. And if that doesn't describe you tonight, if you are at odds with Jesus Christ, if you are not reconciled to God through faith in Christ, I am asking you, I am begging you to reconsider your position. That you would yield in thirsty submission to the Son. That you would bow in humble allegiance to the Son, that you would trust in Him and stop trying to take the hacksaw of your own achievements and cut yourself loose from the chains of sin. It will never, never work. I'm asking you, I'm begging you to yield to Christ and accept His bloody payment for sinners like you and me in repentance and faith. Because you understand what happened on Friday between noon and three, 2,000 years ago was scandalous, and it was tragic, and it was gruesome, and yet at the same time, it was beautiful and glorious and the greatest triumph in human history, which means in the end, it was beautifully ironic. And so I close with two ironies, two beautiful and scandalous ironies for your Good Friday contemplation. Irony number one. Irony number one. When Pilate and the Roman soldiers called Christ the king of the Jews, that was ironic, wasn't it? It was ironic because for them it was a joke. They were kidding. It was preposterous. It was ridiculous. For them, there was no truth at all in the matter, but what they didn't know, what they could not understand, what they had no idea is that Jesus Christ really is the king not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the cosmos. The king of the nations. The one who will come to the planet that rightly belongs to him and establish a glorious kingdom. The glory of a thousand splendid sons and take his seat on the Davidic throne and he will make all things be the way they ought to be. And he'll be worshipped by the nations. That's an irony. Irony number two. Number two. 
to get a sinless man crucified was going to take a lot of work, wasn't it? Justice at every single level would have to be perverted. You understand, to get a guilty verdict and get him crucified, every law had to be broken. Legal processes had to be ignored. Official legal procedures had to be violated. False witnesses had to be bribed and paid off to lie. Why? Because that's what it takes to get a sinless man crucified. That's exactly what happened. And yet, little, little did the rulers of Christ's day know that with all their scheming and all their dreaming and all their strategizing, that they were playing right into the sovereign hands of God, weren't they? They had no idea that the very death that they planned and premeditated, that they thought would put an end to Christ, was in fact the very death that would fulfill everything that God had planned before the foundation of the world. That's an irony. And those are ironies that are so staggering. They're so beautiful that they make us weep, make us worship, and they make us all the more want to live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we marvel at such a plan. We are astonished at a lamb who is a human, who would fulfill everything that the Old Testament sacrifices were only designed to point to. Those were just a foretaste, a theatrical trailer of the final sacrifice to come. We marvel at the sinless one, Father, your very son, who you sent to suffer and die in the place of the very people who deserve to die. And so we ask you, O Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to see the beauty of that, to see that as a beautiful and scandalous moment. Help us, O Lord. Help us to see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what you have accomplished, and that we would weep if need be, that we would worship that we would all the more want to live for your glory. And it's in the mattress name of your son that we pray.